The Pat Kenny Show on News Talk with Matter Private Network. During current restrictions, don't ignore your health concerns. Our expert team is ready to help. Luke O'Neill, Professor of Biochemistry at Trinity College in Dublin. Good morning. Good morning, Pat. Now, let's uh, talk about boosters, first of all, and when to deploy them. There's a lot of uh, scientific study of this, whether or not we're all going to need extra shots and when. There is indeed, Pat. Now, of course, we're in the middle of the first campaign, aren't we? So maybe it's slightly premature, some might think. But it makes sense now to think, when are we going to need booster shots, if they're necessary at all, you know? And all the companies are now looking at this closely. And they're kind of projecting probably a year out is one possibility that we may give boosters. Now, now it'll be people who are in the vulnerable older categories who'll be given the boosters, not, not everybody. You know, in other words, as you said before, like the flu vaccine in a way. But still, they're wondering what would trigger it. Uh, in other words, when it might not be needed, by the way. They're still debating it, you know. Uh, one trigger would be increased hospitalisation, again, obviously, for fully vaccinated people. So in other words, if, if, if the virus begins to reinfect or a variant comes in, that would trigger a booster campaign. That may, may be one metric, you know. But the second is, if there was an increase in mild disease, even if numbers begin to go up, that might then say, look, let's now ramp up and, and prepare for the booster campaign. OK, so that they will, depending on how this particular phase of the pandemic pans out, they will decide um, which boosters, what they will be made up of, will they address particular variants of concern uh, or whether they're needed at all. And that's, exactly, that will yeah, emerge. That, that- and the evidence that's quite good. I mean, these vaccines are working for months and months, remember. They're getting more and more data that immunity is persisting beyond, say, nine months, which is what we want, you know. So if it turns out that the first two shots of any of the vaccines now, including, you know, Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, they may well give one, two, three years protection, you see. We still don't know yet, you know. So, again, it's a bit of a, a bit of a, an analysis that's underway. And, again, just look at the numbers. It'll be a numbers game eventually in terms of if there's increased people getting ill, I suppose, and they may consider it. But if it's, in other words, it's something they're on top of that they're keeping a very close eye on. Yeah. Now, that Indian variant that people are worrying about, um, that it may be 60% more transmissible or whatever that number might be, um, people maybe are over-concerned about it because obviously the the Indian government took its eye off the ball in terms of vaccination of the population and they had all those big mass gatherings without masks and so on. So, in a sense, behaviour, um, as yeah. well as the, the nature of the virus, probably led to their current difficulties. That's right, yeah. And, and the evidence got a bit better last week, but that the vaccines should still protect against severe disease with that one, you see. So, confidence is growing now that the, that the current vaccines should work against variants in terms of stopping the disease progressing. And there was evidence, now it's lab-based evidence, it's still not fully known, you know, but, but the evidence did suggest mm. that you will make antibodies with the, with the vaccine that should be able to limit the Indian ones. That gives us a bit more, a bit more hope. Uh, the thing is, Pat, another reason to vaccinate, uh, to do a booster, is to stop more variants coming up. Because if, if the vaccines begin to wane, there's a risk then of another variant emerging in people, you know, and then that might be another reason. So, so all these things are still being looked at very closely. Yeah. Now, m- meantime, the WHO is saying um, don't vaccinate kids until the adult population globally is fairly fully vaccinated. This is at a time when Pfizer in the UK have got the nod uh, to vaccinate those over 12, and they're looking even to go younger than that. Yeah, very strong statement, Pat, from uh, Tedros Ghebreyesus, you know, the head of the WHO. He's asking countries not to vaccinate their children until the vaccines are rolled out in developing countries. And he makes a very good point, because clearly there's a huge amount of people not vaccinated 
in poorer countries who are now, you know, vulnerable and older people and so on. He, he's issued a very clear statement saying that rich countries should not vaccinate their children until we see more vaccine supply into the developing world. He said, it, he, said he understands why countries would want to vaccinate the children for various reasons, you know. But he's saying, look, please don't do that. Please, please get more vaccine out into the developing countries first. Now, you wanted to also talk about RNA. You know, we're all, it's tripping off our tongues because of the RNA uh, vaccines, but there's more to RNA than vaccines. There is, yeah. The, the RNA as a kind of area has, has been very interesting for years anyway as a possible therapy for various things and also now for vaccines, you know. But, of course, the massive success of, of Pfizer and Moderna, the spotlight's back on RNA again, and there's a huge amount of, of work going into RNA as a possible medicine different contexts and a huge amount of investments going into RNA now. RNA, of course, in the case of the vaccines, the RNA will make the spike protein, as we know, and then you get an immune response to the spike. But a second type of RNA can actually stop proteins being made. It's the opposite. It's called RNA interference. And you can give someone RNA to turn off protein production. And that's always been a bit of a dream, you know. And there's various diseases where that might work. And now the spotlight's back on that because what, what's kind of happened is it, it's easier to make RNA now. It's cheap, cheaper to make because of this big vaccination campaign. Uh, secondly, there are ways of tweaking it to make it less toxic, you know. So therefore, the, uh, the, the, the spotlight shifted back onto RNA again. And these are, are big diseases, but Huntington's disease, motor neuron disease, for example, there's ways of turning off proteins in those diseases with RNA. So suddenly there's optimism now that there may be RNA therapeutics may work in, in a whole range of diseases. So out of uh, a pandemic might emerge some very good and positive medicine. Now, uh, Luke, you sent me a, an article over the weekend from a journal called Wired. And the headline is, The 60-Year-Old Scientific Screw-Up That Helped COVID to Kill. And I, it's just an amazing story. That's all I can say. Maybe you'd uh, summarise it for us. It is a great story. Yeah, a friend of mine, Garrett Connolly, sent me that, but it's Wired. Now, Wired is a great magazine. I'm a huge fan. I don't know if you've read Wired, but they've got really good uh, scientific journalism in that, you know. And it really is a fascinating one. It was the whole notion that COVID is aerosol-borne, you know, this idea that it's in the aerosols, and then whether the, the, the two-metre rule is the main way to combat it. It wouldn't be if it was aerosol-borne, because obviously if it floats on the breeze and can then spread around a room, then you need to have other things, not just the, the, the two-metre yeah, rule. Just to rem- remind people, that the, the idea was that uh, coughing and sneezing and spluttering sends out these big chunks of virus in your spit, basically, that either lands in your face and you breathe it in, or lands on a surface, you touch the surface, touch your nose, and you get it in that way. Uh, that was the conventional thinking. But some of these aerosol scientists, so one called Lindsay Marr, uh, said, hang on a second, it's aerosol. You know, the, the distance yeah. has got to be much more than two metres, but nobody would listen. That's right, yeah. And that, Lindsay Marr, the article's about her, had a very clear account. In April 3rd of 2020, she was on a big Zoom call with the WHO, and she was saying, look, this is an aerosol-borne disease. It's spread through the air. You know, we need to go beyond the notion of just two metres and emphasise masks. Remember, Pat, the WHO were slow. To, to press for masks and ventilation. And she was saying very clearly there's evidence this is aerosol-borne, so you should change the guidelines, you know. And that began this scientific debate as to whether it's aerosol-borne or not. But you're right, though. At that point, the received wisdom was it was like respiratory diseases that come out in droplets and they land, you know, and therefore two metres should protect you. And, and the WHO kept emphasising that, whereas she said, yeah, that's true. It can be in droplets, but it's also in aerosols. So we need to go beyond just the notion of the two-metre rule. 
and then her and a bunch of scientists, and, and they were mainly physicists, but actually and engineers, kept pressing this was aerosol born. And then finally, the WHO began to say, oh, hang on a minute, yeah, you, put, you could be right, Let, let's now revise our guidelines. So it's interesting, interesting when the science develops over time, and then, and then the regulators or the advisors begin to yeah. change their, their guidelines. The extraordinary thing was uh, that they maintained that any big uh, piece of uh, spit or whatever it might be uh, would sink very uh, quickly to the ground. So they said anything above um, five microns will sink to the ground. And it turned out something as big as 100 microns, you don't need to know what it is, just it's a lot bigger than five microns, could be aerosolized. (laughs) And it took uh, someone, someone called Katie Randall who did the historical research to find out how they made this mistake of settling on five microns and it's been like that for 60 years and it's been wrong for 60 years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, PhD student Katie Randall was working in the lab over in the US with Lindsay Marr and she dug back through the literature like, like archaeology and then she finds a thing from 1955 which said, no, it could be 100 microns might have been an aerosol, you know. And then, and then they began to read those very... See, nobody done much research on this for years, but it was, it was neglected as an area. But the mistake was made 60 years ago that, that five microns or less is in an aerosol or above is in a droplet. But it turns out it didn't go all the way to 100 microns to be in an aerosol. And then clearly most respiratory diseases, the aerosol sort of aspect then would be, would be all the more relevant. You know, in other words, you can't just protect against respiratory diseases with a two-metre rule. You need more than that, was, was the kind of bottom line from those, those early studies. And it had been, been neglected, you know. And it, it, even when they did admit that they were wrong, it was very kind of mealy-mouthed and they slipped it out rather than saying, hang on, this is a fundamental misunderstanding that we've been involved with uh, over aerosol transmission of this. Uh, we're sorry, but here's the new guidance and this is, you know, the fact You've got to yeah, do this. Right. So, yeah. ve- you know, ventilation, 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 ventilation. This will have implications for building design, for school design, yeah. for all sorts of things. I, I guess it does take time. But, I mean, clearly the, the WHO were believing this literature going back decades and hadn't realised, in a way, that some of that was mistaken, you know. So, again, it's kind of a lesson in, in how science operates, in a way, that you assume something, you get more evidence. And it's OK to change, by the way, if the evidence changes, remember that the criticism of WHO was a bit slow to change. It's the usual thing about they wanted perfect evidence. You know, they weren't, they weren't prepared to make a clear statement until it all became so compelling. And they may be blamed for that slightly, because if they changed the guidelines sooner, it could have meant that ventilation and masks would have been more apparent, you know, and that could have yeah. saved more lives, I guess. Although they will say, look, they were looking at it, and then the epidemiology was building up, you see, to say it was aerosol born. They were, they were learning that as they went along. You know, so, so they mightn't be totally deserving of a kicking, you might say, you know. But, yeah. still, but, but some example, people, I, you know, you were reporting on the cruise ship, you know. How else yeah. could it have been transmitted in the cruise ship except through aerosols? Because people were locked in their cabins and the idea that they were touching a deck chair that someone with COVID had sat on or whatever, you know, it, it defied logic. The choir that was mentioned as well. Um, where they were bellowing out whatever songs they were singing. But the the suggestion was, as they moved the chairs around before the practice, they may have contracted it. You know, it, it took a great stretch to believe that kind of thing. It did, it did. And again, it's where the weight of evidence began to grow and grow and grow, you see. And then the evidence eventually becomes irrefutable for something, you know. And then the WHO might issue a clear statement. But they are being blamed slightly for being a bit slow on it, you know. And, and, and of course, mm. what's happening, Pat, as well, is there's a, there's a fight then between the engineers and the doctors here. 
because the engineers were saying, look, it is aerosol borne. It's based on these uh, things floating in the air, you know. And then doctors said, no, no, we, we believe stuff that goes back 50 years that turned out to be wrong. So that, that's what that Wired article is about, really. But to give the WHO credit, they do then change. You know, and they say, look, hang on a minute. Masks, ventilation are the way to deal with this virus. And, and that's very important for the future, Pat, because we've got to think now about ventilation very strongly as the winter comes on and make sure we focus on ventilation as the key mitigator yeah. against this, uh, against this but virus. I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, when we opened up before Christmas, if we had known, um, yeah, you know, we right. had the, yeah. the the big Beano before Christmas. If we had known that you couldn't safely open up indoor dining because of the the aerosol transmission, yeah. we possibly might not have done so. Anyway, um, this text says we need an amendment for the Factories Act concerning ventilation, a simple change that could help with COVID spread or uh, other aerosol-borne uh, diseases. Someone else wants to know, Luke, any update on the BCG? and its effect on contracting COVID or otherwise? You know, we're still waiting for it. Yeah, that, that's, a bit, that's disappointing me a little bit. You know, I was hoping we'd have the clinical trials by now. They've been running for quite a while, you know. So I must, I must dig into it a bit more, but nothing's been published or announced on that yet. I know there was at least three trials running, quite extensive trials. So that's just try to, I'll try to find out if there's any updates, but no, nothing's appeared in the scientific literature yet. Um, if evidence on aerosols is now being realised, when will the CMO and the HSC give better advice for shops, restaurants, general public on reopening? Yeah. I mean, that's hugely that's important. They need to get on precisely. the case today. It, it's crystal clear now that, that it's, this is an aerosol-borne disease. Now, droplets as well, but aerosols are very important. And the best way is to have good ventilation by far, you know. I mean, there is talk, there's no question about this talk of any new buildings being built now should absolutely have appropriate ventilation, you see. So that kind of thing is now becoming commonplace in, in that sort of area. But that's quite right. I mean, we need very strong guidelines, especially with the winter coming. But I mean, remember, the good, the good news is that it means outdoors is absolutely safe, you see, because the aerosols just blow away. So we're 100% almost certain of that, you know. But just think when we get to September, October, you know, surely we should now prepare for the winter, to make sure ventilation is good where we want. I mean, it, it is pretty good in schools and so on, I believe, anyway, you know. But certainly we should make sure this winter that ventilation is absolutely in place because it, it, won't, it won't have gone away fully by then, remember. And the fear is it might come back. So ventilation must be a key part of our future. Uh, I got AstraZeneca in mid-March as a healthcare worker, but I'm over 50. Should I wait until July for a second shot or register now as an over 50? That could muddy the waters, oh, I would imagine. One. Yeah, I don't know how that would work. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, and lots of people asking about the side effects. Uh, this one, I did not want to receive a vaccine, but I went ahead for the greater good. I'm glad I did. Please, can you ask, Luke, if there are any additional benefits for the body as opposed to the side effects often discussed from AstraZeneca? That's from Carmel Am. Um, no, I don't think so. No, I mean, I mean, the, I remember the side effects are, aren't a bad thing necessarily because it means your immune system is kicking off. And it does feel a bit rough, let's face it. I mean, but still, it, it, they resolve after a day or so. But if anybody's worried, again, the message is just contact your GP. But you shouldn't be too worried if you have a few side effects here or there. It means you're probably going to be really well protected, you see. That's the thing to remember. Although the other thing to say, of course, is if you have no side effects, it doesn't mean your immune system isn't working either. You know, it's just there's a range of responses there. Um, lots of people are asking questions that maybe should be directed at their GP but this one I'm due to start on a biologic Stellara for Crohn's and psoriasis soon I've had my first AstraZeneca vaccine should I wait until after my second dose before I start on biologic 
No, I wouldn't think so, Pat. I'd say take the biologic there would be the advice, you know, because the vaccines are still working in people on those kinds of immunosuppressants, which is the first thing to say. They don't, they don't limit the effects of the vaccine, we don't think, you know. But again, check, check with your consultant who's prescribing that just to be on the safe side. Yeah. I mean, people are asking this one. My partner suffers with Lyme disease. Would this impact uh, her ability to be vaccinated? Because Lyme disease can be very debilitating. Yeah, there's no evidence. I know about uh, Lyme disease is quite common, especially in the US, for instance. And again, there's no evidence that Lyme disease would impact on, on these vaccines. So that wouldn't, that wouldn't be a concern. All right, Luke, uh, thank you very much uh, for that. And I would recommend to people to go online and find that article in Wired uh, about the 60-year-old mystery that was solved by really intrepid people and uh, maybe set the WHO and all other health authorities, including the CDC and indeed Dr Fauci, on the right track. <laughs> Luke, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Luke O'Neill, Professor of Biochemistry in Trinity College in Dublin. 